Welcome, everybody. I am Will Fenton, the Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia. As many of you who are return participants would know, I always give a very brief spiel of the Library Company. I'll keep it very short. We were founded by Benjamin Franklin almost 300 years ago. Today, we are an independent research library with terrific program strengths in early Americana, in uh, visual and material culture, ephemera, African-American history, women's history, and um, political economy and business history. And we have a wonderful fellowship program that supports as many as 55 fellows, I believe we have this year. It's gonna be a struggle for us to support all those folks given all the other challenges we're facing. One thing that I'm eternally grateful for is that all of those fellows past and um, you know, present have always been um, very uh, generous with their time and their loyalty to the library company. And this webinar series that you're joining right now is totally sustained by that generosity. I sent out an appeal back early April of this year, thinking that this was gonna be a one-off, maybe once a month sort of program. And there was such a generous uh, response that we've been able to sustain this weekly. And this is actually our 25th fireside chat since we started. So um, thank you all for helping to support this, um, this ongoing learning community. We have uh, Vincent DiGirolamo, an associate professor of history at Baruch College, where he specializes in 19th and 20th century US history with a focus on workers, children, immigrants, city life, and print culture. In other words, he really belongs spending time at the library. Uh, he is the author of the subject of tonight's fireside chat, Frying the News, a history of America's newsbooks, published by Oxford University Press, and winner of the 2020 Frederick Jackson Turner Award, Philip Taft Labor History Prize, Frank Luther Mock Research Award, and Eugenia M. Palmingiano Prize from the American Historical Association. Originally from Monterey, California, that is, DiGiralmo received his BA from UC Berkeley, his MA from UC Santa Cruz, and his PhD from Princeton University. Welcome, Vince. Pleasure to have you. Thank you, Will. Thank you for that introduction. Thank you all for coming, spending time, logging on. Uh, this is as glamorous as it gets for me. Here we are at the Library Company of Philadelphia, the library founded by Benjamin Franklin, my favorite founding father. What I thought I would do today is really uh, take you through my book uh, and explain sort of how I came to write it and, uh, and, and why Newsboys, and give you a taste of some of the major arguments and leave plenty of time for questions. Um, I have some PowerPoint. I have what 178 images in the in the book, which is a lot. Which uh, thank you, Susan and Oxford and and other uh, funding institutions for allowing me to have that. You know, I, it's not just because I couldn't decide, couldn't make it up, which make up my mind which images I wanted. Is that you know part of what I'm doing in this in this book is to chart the social history of this occupational group, what their experience was like on the streets, right? Working, uh, uh, hustling, uh, their relationship to their family economies, their relationship to the industry, all of these things. But also, unlike many, many other child laborers, uh, newsboys are romanticized and mythologized and, and uh, uh, layered with all kinds of meanings about capitalism, about the work ethic, about the American character. So the cultural icon of the newsboy 
it, it exists simultaneously side by side with this real these real kids who did real work. And so my challenge was to say, well, how did one influence the other? How did what they did on in reality influence the cultural interpretations of them? And then how, of course, did the did the the novels, the paintings, the the uh, the illustrations, the cartoons, the advertisements, the movies, the photographs, how did they influence a social reality, which they did by helping to persuade people this is good work, this is character building, this is terrible work, this is corrupting. You know, so so there's a dialogue between the cultural representations and the social reality. So I had to spend uh, uh, a lot of time trying to make sense of these images, which I'll share some with you today, some of which aren't even in the book, uh, and, uh, and to try to look at that, at that relationship. Um, what I did try to do today too, is try to give it a little Philadelphia twist. I wanted to, uh, to emphasize uh, the local story. Crying the news is a national story. It's a national story for a couple of reasons. One's because I'm a glutton for punishment. And I just, oh no, I got to tell the whole American story, New York, California, uh, middle Midwest, the South. Um, and, and of course I wanted to do the whole history. I want to do from Franklin to, to, to yesterday. Um, uh, really it though focuses on a hundred years, 1830s to the 1930s mostly. And, uh, but it is a national story. It started out, my focus nationally was because, uh, because the sources were so scant because I would find a great article on New York, a great article on Boston, a great article on, on Detroit. Uh, and I would have to piece these together and, and I didn't wanna not use it. And so I, I started sort of by default to sort of draw uh, uh, nationally. Um, uh, and so I, I probably would have been smarter to focus on one city, but I think there also is a national story to be told. Uh, this occupation, unlike textile, unlike mining, unlike other industries where children work, they were, they sold papers all over the country, okay? And it, and it differed uh, by region, it differed according to the demography of the cities, it differed uh, if it was an industrial city or a commercial city, a, a frontier city, I have a whole chapter on the West. So, um, so I think we, we can see, uh, and these newspapers, uh, of course, develop newspaper chains uh, and their, their, their philanthropies and their ways of disciplining and supervising and recruiting and, and, and uh, stimulating the sales of these children. That's, you know, the, the, the newspaper circulation managers, publishers, they organize. So, so there is a national uh, dialogue going on. And of course, the reform movement as well. Uh, trying to drive the children off the street, uh, that uh, that was a national, the National Child Labor Committee. So, so we're talking about America. We're talking about American character. We're talking about the American economy, and um, and so let me let me share my screen. Let me talk about the why newsboys and. Um, and so to make some of the larger points of, that I'm trying to make through the book. It's not just a happy little book about, about these lovable little newsboys. I think there's more, there's more to it than that, of course. So I will see if you agree. I will try to share some of these arguments with you. All right, I'm sharing my screen in a big way here. Look at that. Is that lovely or what? Crying yeah. the news in Philadelphia. So that's my, that's my effort. That's my... my uh, thrust today, uh, but I will branch out, of course. So the question of, of you know, why spend years of, uh, you know, research and writing about these, you know, picturesque little child laborers of yesteryear, 
uh, particularly when, you know, this group has been so thoroughly romanticized, even mythologized, uh, and, and primarily as followers in the, uh, originally uh, followers in the footsteps of our beloved Benjamin Franklin, right, who is widely acknowledged as America's first newsboy, uh, because he peddled his brother's paper, the New England Current, uh, through the cobbled streets of Boston in 1720 before absconding, running away, and uh, going to Philadelphia. Um, and so he, but he became rich and famous with his writings, right, starting with Poor Richard's Almanac uh, and The Way to Wealth, pictured here, uh, which really laid out the, uh, the virtues needed to prosper, honesty, industry, frugality, uh, uh, civility. And uh, the aphorism there, you can't read it, but on the cover of, of uh, uh, The Way of Wealth says, for age and want, save while you may, no morning sun lasts the whole day. All right, so, so start early, be, be industrious. And, uh, and so he becomes an icon, especially through this, through his autobiography of, of how to, how to uh, raise yourself up and how to live a, a good life. We see Franklin becoming the prototypical newsboy, not really in the 18th, early 19th century, but in the, in the late 19th century as we end the 20th century, uh, this Charles Mills uh, uh, drawing sort of illustrates that with his uh, Franklin selling ballads in the streets of Boston. So similar pictures illustrated the uh, children's books and, and uh, 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 other kinds of uh, uh, illustrations. And it was quite, uh, uh, quite a formidable influence is the, the, the Franklin, uh, living, live up to Franklin's uh, uh, example. Come to find out that America's first newsboy was not Benjamin Franklin. This is one of my small, but, but uh, I don't know, significant little findings. Uh, it was actually a slave, a slave who uh, delivered the, the first successful newspaper in the colonies, which was Boston Postmaster's John Campbell's Boston Newsletter. Uh, and written in the margins of a yellowed copy owned by abolitionist Judge Samuel Sewall. I think I have a picture of this, uh, this Boston Newsletter. Uh, <clears throat> and it's preserved at the New York Historical Society, is a note saying, Mr. Campbell's Negro gave this, gave me this. Uh, May 24th, 1705. So that's 15 years before uh, Franklin peddled his ballads and his, and his brother's newspaper. A minor discovery, I admit, but it kind of, it shows how slavery permeated uh, society and underlies even our most cherished myths. Okay, so uh, this is part of the history that I want to tell. It's not just a one, ex a one example. Uh, Black Peter delivered the Boston Evening, Evening Post and was able to leave his son a small property. A free Black named Andrew Kane was employed by a, a printer in Philadelphia, and he, and he distributed papers as well uh, up in mid-1700s to 1814. So they're not part of the myth. They're not part of the upward mobility, the bootstrap uh, ideology, but they're definitely part of the story. And so if we look for people, we can, we can find them and we see that this is a, a quite a, a diverse industry. Uh, one other example of an early African-American, this is a, 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 a fugitive slave ad, right? Calling for the recovery of uh, a man named Anthony, $25 uh, reward. He ran away from Raleigh um, uh, two months ago and he is the general body servant of, of uh, General Jones. 
Uh, let's see, I have to move my little thing so I can read it. Um, and lately as a pressman and a news carrier for the Star Office in, in Raleigh. Uh, and so Anthony is 25, 26. Uh, let me just read the second paragraph. I get a sense of his character. He, he works and walks fast, is lively and talkative, full of anecdote, which he tells in character with much humor, is an excellent pressman, indifferent at distributing types, a tolerable carpenter and joiner, a plain painter, an excellent manager of horses, drives well and rides elegantly, having been accustomed to race riding, is fond of cockfighting and man of man fighting when drunk, and is said to heal and pit with skill. With skill. I think that's the, the dance. He can bleed and pull teeth, knows something of medicines, and is a rough barber, a bad but conceited cook, a good sawyer, can lay bricks, has worked in the cornfields, and can scratch a little on the fiddle. All right, so we get, we get in this slave ad, we get a real rich picture of this individual who does a lot of things, but he's also engaged in the news trade. So there he is in, in 1815. Um, um, and so part of what attracted me to this subject was that this was a real uh, diverse occupation. It was boys, it was also girls, I'll show. It was, it was immigrants, it was native born, it was young, it was old people, it was the disabled. So we get the, the sort of the lower classes of the United States sort of uh, uh, gravitating to this work because it was a kind of work where you didn't have to be formally employed. You didn't have to even speak English. You just had to come up with the wherewithal for a few papers and sometimes they'd give you free papers and then you would uh, buy and sell again. And so it became a, a real a, a low bar to entry, and thus it attracted uh, lots of different people. All right, so here we are, 1831. Uh, uh, part of part of the press. I really I really start with 1833, which is the start of the penny press. But but here is the Liberator, an abolitionist uh, newspaper, William Lloyd Garrison, and another uh, early unlikely uh, a person who's not talked about, Lewis Howard Latimer. He uh, his father was an escaped slave that that Garrison helped, and uh, and and Latimer ends up um, working for his father, leaving school at age ten, but also distributing uh, uh, the Liberator uh, in working towards his own abolition, if you will. Right, the the, the Liberator was the, was the most strident anti-slavery paper of the day, um, and so he's he's uh, part of the history, uh, if not part of the of the uh, the legend, the myth. So here, I just want to talk about uh, and point out, moving ahead a bit, uh, that the, the newsboy really does become the symbol of the American work ethic, of a bootstrap individualism, of upward mobility. And this uh, idea really took root in the Gilded Age, right? In this period, the post-Civil War period, 1870s, 80s, uh, 90s. Um, and the most influential uh, depictions, of course, appeared in the stories of Horatio Alger uh, Jr. There's the frontispiece to Ragged Dick. That's his first uh, boy's novel. That's his first novel of the street kid sort of uh, um, uh, doing good and getting lucky and, and uh, going not from rags to riches, but from rags to kind of middle class respectability. And so this planted the seed of what, of what poor working class kids could do if they had the right attitude. So what we're seeing here is a, a, a kind of a, a argument, a debate in juvenile literature, in art as well, about what creates opportunity. Is it, is it um, 
individual character, motivation, will, or is it the structure of opportunities that, that's different for di different people of different classes and races, okay? And so there's an argument made in these books and John George Brown's painting that it's all about character. It's all about your individual effort and will. So that kind of gets at the heart of a, a central myth in, in the, uh, American history. J.G. Uh, Brown, he was a child laborer in England. He was he worked in a glass factory, and he really considered him a realist, as did as did Horatio Alger. Um, but you know, it doesn't look all that real with these rosy-cheeked uh, ragamuffins, right? The, the, they thrived on the on the street, um, and he he said, you know, I want people a hundred years from now uh, from now to know how my kids look like. That's why I paint them so realistically. But then in another breath, he said, if you put dirty faces on them, you can't sell them. And so and so we see uh, this idealized uh, reality that John George Brown, very complementary of, uh, very similar in a sense to what Horatio Alger is doing. Um, um, so this is, and of course, of course, Brown had a had a dress up box as well in his studio, and he had to make them look look authentic. Uh, they didn't come off the streets uh, authentically. Um, so this idea of the this newsboy image and icon and symbol is really uh, developing there in the in the 19th century, and and also is transformed in the, uh, uh, the later in the century, early 1900s, Success Magazine, Ambition Magazine, right? Putting the, uh, featuring the newsboy as the prototypical uh, success story. And there we see Thomas Edison at the lower life, George Childs, that's George Childs right there. And the, uh, he's a Philadelphia guy, I'm gonna talk about him. Um, and so these, uh, some of these we don't, we don't remember. Uh, but this is this is the uh, they're the embodiment of self-help and self-improvement in in following in the tradition of of the Benjamin Franklin uh, story as well. One final picture uh, uh, before I get into the uh, other section. This is my friend Noodles Fagan. Here he is. Who's Noodles Fagan? Right. How come he's missing from other histories of America? Noodles Fagan, I argue, is the first motivational, motivational speaker in corporate America. He was an old newsboy. He had this, you know, uh, foghorn voice, and he would go around to the newspapers. They would hire him, and he would ginger up the, the boys and teach them how to how to yell and what to what to say and and try to you know in, improve their character. Right? You can sell papers with a clean face as well as a dirty face. You know, he would try to. Uh, educate them and, and, and as well. I, my favorite line he used to say was, it don't pay to get killed. It don't pay to get killed. I think that's a good, a good motto for today even. But, but again, it was a dangerous occupation. And, and so he was, you know, be safe and crossing streets and things like that. And he used to also uh, go on tour with another vaudevillian, this, uh, this hip, the uh, uh, little hip. Uh, and so they went to Philadelphia, they went to uh, the West, they went all over and they become part of this industry to, to uh, 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 sort of, uh, I guess, uh, discipline the boys labor, get the most out of them and, and turn them into uh, a real salesman. So it's not, it's not accidental that these children earned a certain reputation. There's a whole newspaper industry that's that's trying to characterize them, not as exploited waifs um, or not as revolutionary dissatisfied workers, but as little, little go-getters, little merchants who are going to uh, uh, demonstrate the virtues of capitalism. So these are the kind of arguments that are being uh, laid, laid on them. All right, so what am I gonna say next? Let's see. 
Ah, here is a photograph that is in the uh, uh, the front of my book. This is a uh, photograph from a Boston newspaper that's been in my family for a long time. And this is a detective that's interrogating uh, the runaways. There's my uncle Andy next to the next to the detective. Um, uh, my fa uh, uh, their friend uh, uh, Vincent, and then my father George is on the far right. So he's what five years old. He's running away from Boston to go to uh, to to Monterey. His father was a fisherman. They moved to Monterey. He was going to go, not waste time. He was going to go get him. So um, so I grew up with with their stories of being street urchins in 1930s Boston, and then later in in Monterey selling papers, shining shoes. Um, and so in some ways, the book is kind of inspired by this sort of family history. Um, but, I, but I also uh, thought that there was also something to it because, you know, they all, they all went into business. They all opened bars and restaurants and fish markets and pool halls and card rooms and you name it. And so they became entrepreneurs. They never, most of them never really worked for people for wages. And so I wanted to know, you know, if this working class experience, uh, it's not just about wage earning. It's not, it's not just it, people, there's people engaged in business in, in penny, penny capitalism, I call it. And so that's part of the working class experience, taking in borders, uh, selling goods and selling them, uh, these kinds of things. Lots of working class people made ends meet, uh, not with wage labor, but by engaging in these sort of commercial practices. So I thought labor history had kind of neglected this aspect of the working class experience. And I thought, well, you know, newsboys are, of course, not employees, but they're part of this entrepreneurial tradition. Uh, so there's a kind of a, not just a family personal reason, but there's a, a, a genuine reason to, uh, or intellectual reason to kind of um, explore the role of penny capitalism uh, in, in, in uh, family economies. I think here is, here's my best, my, one of my favorite pictures, which sort of underscores the point. I found this up in the uh, uh, Albany, New York uh, State Library in Albany, a Yiddish newspaper stand in New York, circa 1903. This is from the, the New York Child Labor Committee. And it's kind of, you know, an odd picture. Everybody's out of frame, but there's the, uh, uh, a girl selling papers at this stand, and uh, she has her siblings, I would imagine, nearby taking care of them. So here we have the newsstand acting as a playpen. Uh, so if that doesn't tell you that, that, that this news peddling is part of a family economy, I don't know what does. Uh, the boys are all looked at, as I say, as little Wall Street traders, and they're, they're, they're you know, tied to the, to the, to the uh, uh, commercial enterprises, uh, but in fact, uh, they're more, they, they give their money to their mother, they're, it's part of the domestic economy. So that's something that I, that I do show in the book. Uh, all right, we'll move on. Um, okay, just another a picture of girls, again, to stress that this is a boy, uh, primarily a boy male occupation, and I'm interested in their socialization. How do you acquire certain attitudes about class and power and, and, and boyhood and manhood. What does it mean to be a boy? How do you learn about sex on the streets? All of these things I'm learning. And where do girls fit in? They're, they are shoved off to the side. They have to tangle with boys. They have to endure uh, uh, different kinds of harassment, but they're definitely, they're definitely there. Uh, a minority within the, within the workforce 
but a, a minority that I do pay attention to. Uh, first in the 1850s and the 1870s, they come. And then finally in the 1890s, there's a lot of girls and they get a lot of attention. Uh, but but this, this occupational group definitely in girls uh, includes, includes girls. I could talk more about these pictures later. I'm just making this, uh, this general start. Okay, uh, now, uh, how's my time? How am I doing? Oh gosh, yes. Oh, I'm going, I'm taking a long time. Briefly, this is the structure of the book. I, it has three parts, Children of the Penny, 1833 to 65, um, about four chapters there, I think, five chapters there. Children of the Breach, this is our Gilded Age. This is the, the class war, the, the, the uh, industrialization and the uh, big cities growing up and, and uh, new immigrants and lots of, lots of labor violence. And so I look at the children's role and look at, look at how they are involved in the, in the uh, political and, and uh, industrial struggles of their day. They're not just innocent bystanders. Uh, children of the state, we move, uh, we move to the 20th century um, where governments are starting to regulate uh, child labor, street labor is becoming less, uh, less seen as the solution to uh, juvenile delinquency and homelessness and poverty, uh, but as, as the cause, as part of the problem. So that's the transition we see from early decades to, to lower decades. News peddling as a solution to poverty, then news peddling as, as part of what's corrupts these, these children. Um, I have that little cleft there and uh, just to remind me of, of kind of the, 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 the structure of my, of, my, uh, of my chapters. Again, it's kind of a, I don't know, I call this, uh, uh, what is the narrative long form nonfiction, you know, about the past, otherwise known as history. But in telling this story, I try to uh, go across this, you know, every good boy does fine, these go up and down the, uh, uh, the scale and really chart the changing relationship of these boys with each other, um, uh, with their families, uh, with the industry as well, how the industry changes, with society at large through war, depression. And then I also try to chart the changing relationship them with the sort of cultural producers, with the artists and the photographers and look at how their, how their life changes and their representation changes. So these are the kinds of, uh, of uh, concerns I have in these various chapters. I'm really just gonna focus on this first and maybe a little bit of the second one uh, for the remainder of the talk. And we can add, we, I can answer questions about the, the later business. Um, so here, 1833, we're talking about uh, the penny press, right? The first time that newspapers are very cheap, affordable by ordinary working people. Uh, the New York Sun is the first paper. And there commences a real carnival of print. Uh, one of uh, uh, my, my colleagues terms it, uh, Lehu. And I, I love that term because it really is a carnival of print. And so we see here uh, the gilt-edged gift books. These were, these were story books that were issued annually. The weekly rake, uh, these are the sort of uh, randy, randy, uh, naughty papers that are that are that are issued. That, that uh, the the flash the flash press they're called. Freedom's Journal, another abolitionist press. There's lots of political uh, political newspapers as well. And then we have the City Cries, and this is one of the first City Cries in which a newsboy is prominently uh, uh, conveyed there. City Cries were 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 um, 
little small little books um, that were illustrated and had little poems and they each featured a different kind of street peddler and they gave the authentic cry of the street peddler they had a little poem about about uh, selling corn hot corn things like that and and they were often used to teach uh, children to read and so this is uh this is the, the kinds of uh periodicals, pr uh, publications that are appearing at this time, and um, newsboys are appearing in them as well as dis disseminating them throughout the society. Um, so here again is the, is the, uh, uh, the Penny Press. Uh, it was known for its hoaxes. Here is the, the great, the, the, the New York Sun's uh, uh, big fable about discovering bats on the moon, and it was a big uh, a, a farce. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe had a man crossing the Atlantic in a balloon. This is the uh, the the age of uh, P.T. Barnum. Uh, there we have Helen Jewett on the right. She was a, a prostitute who was murdered in a sensational trial. So these early newspapers were not just about shipping news and political news. They were about blood and thunder. They were about crime and 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 scandal. And they were more appealing to the ordinary working people. And they were not just devoted to the truth. They were they were they could entertain by 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 making things up. And it was all seen in sort of good fun. Not just in good fun, but it was a kind of a, a time like our own time today, where science and experts and scholars, who needs them? What do they know about anything? This is America. This is a democracy. My opinion is as good as anybody's. And so these uh, these. Uh, uh, fake stories, these fake news, they were a way to sort of pay, uh, poke fun at the scientific community, at, at the so-called experts. And so this is why they were tolerated. And, and, and uh, But that was a, a definitely an aspect. Early on, we see these kids, 1836, pretty, pretty early, we see the, these kids becoming political figures. Here in this cartoon, um, they are representatives of the Whig press and of the Democratic press. And, uh, and the local FOCO, the match sellers, they're also representatives of the, of the democratic press. So, so you could have political cartoons where you're, where you're using these children as stand-ins for, uh, for political factions, if you will. Uh, and so this is, this the custom house is a democratic stronghold. There's all sorts of things going on in this image uh, and references. Uh, but the point is that, that they become, uh, uh, summoned into the political fray and they're doing political business they're they're selling either either Whig or democratic newspapers they're putting up posters for certain candidates tearing down posters for other candidates that's part of their job so they're they're really uh, foot soldiers in the in the uh, uh, in the partisan politics if you will and that's quite early um, here is a, a, a similar um, uh, negotiations with the newsboy. W among this carnival of print were mammoth papers. These were papers you can see one here. It's like it's like a you know one story, ten feet long. Uh, it required two boys to to to, uh, to hold them up. So this was one of the many kinds of things that were that were published. And of course we see uh, here Fizz. He was the the artist for for Dickens and 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 uh, Cornelius Matthews uh, tells the story of this country boy who comes to New York to make his to make his uh, uh, success, and he gets caught up in the newspapers and the politics, and uh, and uh, and so this is this is this is again part of the sort of political story. That's another main theme that I'm trying to do is that these children were political actors, okay, and they're involved in all kinds of things. Here they're involved in labor. 
right? An indignation meeting of newsboys. They're mad at the, at the New York Evening Mayor. And so they're striking and they're, they're trying to convince the public uh, not to buy this paper. And so this is a, a very early uh, newspaper cartoon illustration of a strike. This is in New York. Um, uh, 44, there was one in, in Philadelphia, a newsboy strike. Let me just read it. It's kind of interesting. It talks about, I'm not just making this up, the political consciousness of these young people, right? Resolved that the newsboys is free newsboys, entitled to sell papers according to free trade, as cheap as they can be printed, right? right? Not slaves, we're free. Resolved that the news of Clay's election oughtn't to be kept from all people, and we are opposed to all tricks to keep it from what buys them what buys our paper. Resolved that we will open a room and spend one night a week and smoke cigars, and that they will, uh, we will lick any boy what drinks any liquor. So they're going to indulge in their vices, but they're going to they're going to maintain uh, order against vices they don't like. Resolved that as the ledger has violated the rights of man, this is the New York, the Philadelphia Public Ledger, in asking us poor boys with widowed mothers and desolated sisters to pay two cents for extras. And so this is uh, printed in a, in a Brooklyn newspaper, but they don't like the fact that they've been, they've, they've, the price has been raised and that there's some kind of delays on their newspapers. And, they, and so, so anyway, they're organizing, they're imbibing the, the working men's sort of ethic and ethos of the day, and they are engaged in, in uh, defending their rights. Okay, um, here we got some uh, uh, New York C, uh, uh, figures on the left from Nicolino Calio, uh, Neapolitan artist, um, and, uh, and, and then this uh, Lewis Fatman and Company, Philadelphia. Here the point I wanna make is that these kids, these poor, ragged, straggly kids, they are independent, working for themselves, you know, penny, penny Annie stuff, but they're part of a big, a big industries. They're part of here, of the steam friction, uh, matches manufactured, the black, who makes the shoe polish, the blacking, all right? So they're all connected in this kind of shadow labor. Um, uh, it, it's connected to, to large enterprises, okay? So that's the, this is the, the, the boot black. Uh, the practice in those days was to pick up the boots on, on somebody's porch and shine them and then deliver them back. Uh, and then during this period, the actual shining them on a box becomes the practice. So this, I think, sort of shows that. Same with rag picking. Rag picking is a, a lowly occupation. African-Americans, immigrants are doing this, but cash paid for rags in this big uh, company, pa paper manufacturer, uh, and, and newspapers as well relied on, on, on rags to, uh, for their newsprint. And so again, humble, humble business, but, um, uh, but connected to big industries, and no, nothing more, no better example than the uh, the newspaper industry, right? These these individuals, um, um, sort of having kind of a subsistence living, but they're also uh, the, the Philadelphia Public Ledger. There is uh, a, a prominent uh, newspaper. I'll say more about that. And in here is uh, um, the, the the Polka Ledger. So the 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 Ledger has a composes commissions someone to compose a song for the for uh, the newsboys and to, to be the theme song of the newspaper. So they're becoming, they're connected with these big industries. And of course, newspapers are, a, are an industry that actually sort of influences public opinion as opposed to paper or, or blacking or matches. Uh, so it's even more influential. Uh, so that's, that's the point there. So they're not, they're becoming uh, uh, part of sheet music. They're becoming part of the theater. They're becoming cultural figures in a big way. And, and this is a, uh, uh, an age of, 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 of popular theater. And there we have the newsboy. They were known for being consumers of 
of the of the theater because they had some spending money. They didn't have parents leave, you know, uh, leaning over them and, and telling them what to do. And so they were known as very uh, rambunctious uh, theater goers. In fact, in Philadelphia, the boys in Philadelphia pioneered the practice. They didn't call it that, but they called, what is it called? The surfing, body surfing, not body surfing, but when you, when you carry a boy over, over your head and pass him from person to person throughout the building, uh, that's what they were known for. Um, so they become icons of the stage and uh, pictured on, then they, then they become performers. And, and this, this uh, guy here, um, Barney Williams, he's a, he was the very first newsboy for the New York Sun. And he becomes a very well-known uh, uh, comedic, comic, comedic actor. Um, so again, they're becoming cultural icons as well, caught up by the, by the uh, uh, artists of the day, Henry Inman. Uh, so they're they're painting portraits of them. Uh, William Page, the young merchants, um, and FOC Darley. He's a, a Philadelphia artist. And what I found interesting about this is that these artists set the story. They set the, they set the table. And after their paintings were completed, then the publishers said, "You know, we need a story for this." So then you had a, you had a, a famous stories being uh, uh, written a little fictional vignettes and what have you and that and that and that the newsboy figure as an icon is developed in these stories but the images the visual art is what is what really uh, uh, starts it we think that you know the story is written and then they oh we need some illustration it's the it was the opposite maybe you historians in the group will see if that's true in other places um, again, I go a little faster, 1858, a symbol of modernity, the itinerant newsboy. Uh, these I found at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Here's a patent for a, a, a combination letterbox lamppost. And um, so they're part of this market revolution, this, this, this really a, a revolution in transportation and communication, transforming the economy, early industrialization with steam, the, the printers, the, the steam presses are now uh, able to print up more newspapers. Uh, again, just another uh, Philadelphia scene. Um, and this is, uh, this is a part of this uh, larger scene, uh, again, of this uh, uh, railroad car, streetcar manufacturer. Uh, so they're, they're all over and they're just part of the, the figures of the city. Here, let me jump to Diddley Dumps, another uh, character uh, from New York, excuse me, from Philadelphia. And uh, and he was a, a very well known kid on the streets, a real a real boy, and um, and uh, he was taken in under the wing of the uh, Newsboy Association. There was an early Newsboy home that he lived in, um, and so this uh, uh, Ratchford Star uh, wrote wrote his sort of uh, biography, if you will, and it's a kind of it's intended to kind of. Uh, teach middle-class kids to be charitable and to love the people who are less fortunate than they are. And so it has that kind of didactic quality, but it does give you a certain sense of this boy and he, he lives, a tragic, he dies young. And so, uh, but, but, but again, they're, they're also being uh, incorporated into, the, uh, into the, uh, uh, the, the book market as well. Here, just to give a sense of the political activities of these children, uh, the Sunday newspaper, uh, um, controversy, the Sabbatarians. They did not want mail to be delivered, trains to be, to be run. They wanted nothing to be done on, on the Sabbath. And this was, this was a big, big movement. This was bigger than abolition. This was bigger than the women's rights. The Sabbatarians were big in this period. And of course, newsboys with their Sunday papers, 
they were violating the Sabbath and they had the audacity to, uh, uh, to, to yell their papers in front of the churches. Philadelphia did not like this at all. Philadelphia is a church going city. And, uh, and so there was a real conflict uh, in Philadelphia and the boys stood up for their rights and we're gonna have a resolution that you shouldn't be able to ring your bells on Sunday. Um, and so again, this is the, the mayor of Philadelphia, uh, Conrad, who, uh, who tries to wipe them off the streets, but, they, but it's, it's, imp it's impossible. So again, they're involved in that particular reform movement. Um, and abolition as well. Um, um, here is if you're, uh, um, if you're delivering a, a message, this was a, an anti-Kansas an anti, uh, message uh, uh, against the, the anti-slavery faction and people in Washington didn't like that, would beat up the boys. Uh, also selling the New York Tribune, which was a, a abolitionist uh, anti-slavery paper. Uh, if you happen to approach a, a Southern uh, uh, cotton trader, uh, he, would, he would tell you to get lost. Um, so this was, uh, they, were, they were definitely embroiled in the social movements of the day. Thomas Waterman Wood, uh, there he is in, uh, uh, he's an African-American uh, in Baltimore. And he, uh, there, there is work being done in how these street traders were also part of the Underground Railroad. They would be able to spot people and direct them. And so, so again, just part of the political activities. Uh, I'm running out of time, I better stop. Maybe I'll stop with the Civil War. Uh, William E. Winner, he is an artist that did this Philadelphia newsboy. And uh, uh, here he is sitting in front of the North American office, uh, 132 South 3rd Street. And we see his style, we see he's dapper, he's got, he doesn't just, uh, raggedly go about selling his papers. He's presiding over the, over the boulevard. He owns the boulevard. Uh, and so this is again, sort of an iconic image of these kids. And, and, they, and during the Civil War, their reputation goes from you know, street urchin troublemaker to patriot, to someone who's helping to save the, the union, who may often be the, the son of a, of a, of a, uh, a Civil War soldier or, or a dead veteran. And so uh, they're, they're looked on more charitably, uh, although they do engage in, in uh, riots and, the, and, and including the, uh, uh, the draft riot, 1863, attacking newspapers. Newsboys are at the front of this. Uh, you know what? I think I have to stop because, uh, because we're going into the, uh, we're, going, we're running out of time. I, I'm just so long-winded. Who knew? Um, but again, look at the big business. Look at the, the, the size of the Philadelphia uh, uh, the public ledger. Uh, here post-Civil War. Uh, and of course, we get all kinds of, of poverty and, and uh, uh, we get the Panic of 1873 and, and want and, and um, uh, street violence as well. And these kids are, are, are wounded bystanders and, and actually involved. Uh, finally, I will, just, I will just skip to press philanthropy becomes another theme in my book. Finding homes, newsboy homes. Uh, this is our friend Child and, and Elizabeth uh, uh, Hutter, another Philadelphian who finds a newsboy home, uh, 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 a dime bank. They have banquets. They have they have uh, excursions. They have picnics. They have newsboy bands uh, again to kind of clean up their reputation and and to give the students uh, something. They have newsboy schools right right in the newspaper office. This is Grand Rapids, Michigan, a cafe, a playground. So they're engaging in these philanthropic uh, opportunities. Uh, let me stop there. Baseball, newsboy league, baseball, boxing, and here's the Golden Gloves. Golden Gloves. I'll, I'll end with that. Started in the uh, uh, started in, in Chicago and New York, 
but uh, lots of Philadelphia boxers there. So, so press philanthropy is part of what I'm uh, uh, showing as well as labor activism. All right, I'm not sharing my screen. I'll shut up. Thank you so much, Vincent. That was wonderful. And um, just judging by all of the images you've pulled together from all of those different archives and, and cultural heritage institutions, um, if Oxford University Press let you publish even like half of them in your book, your book alone is worth it, you know, just in terms of that survey. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to um, offer a sort of open-ended question that might take us into some of the questions. We already have a couple of questions related to the sort of labor history dimension of this. And I guess my question is really about the, the relationship between this mythology of the newsboy in the Gilded Age as this sort of ambitious, upwardly mobile, hardy, white boy and then um, the sort of political movements that are coming into being at this time. I mean, if we're thinking about the sort of nascent progressive movement um, that might be advocating for new labor policies, such as you know, uh, restraining child labor, um, how did they contend with the mythology of the newsboy, the sort of progressive movement? Or did they just sort of like look for other child labor that was easier to demagogue? Um. Well, the newsboys were the, the last real group to be to be uh, regulated because they were not they were not gainfully employed. You couldn't just you couldn't just tell, tell the employer don't hire them. Uh, we don't hire them. They just buy papers. We don't know who buy papers, who buys papers from somebody. Uh, so they were the last. And actually, as other industries were regulated, those kids still needed to work to support the family. They go into the street trade. So it, so it increased. Hmm. Um, um, so the progressive era, people had to convince uh, their, their fellow citizens that this was bad, that this was corrupting, that this was uh, cheating them out of school. And there was not a lot of, of, of agreement about that among working class people. They, there was an ethos that, you know, kids should help out. And, and uh, um, but, but still, working class people also and, and unions also agitated for child labor laws. They didn't want to compete with children and they wanted uh, a free education. So it wasn't just the middle-class progressives who are trying to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to change the, the story. Uh, la labor unions, the AFL, Knights of Labor, they're all for regulating child labor as well. But that is the contest. That is the, the challenge. How do you convince people that this is uh, not acceptable and that you're you know, misraising your, your child? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, certainly that, that image of, or the, the, the photograph of the child below the newsstand where you talked about that as um, sort of the playpen <laughs> and the newsstand com combined. I mean, I could imagine in the 20th century with the popularization of, of photography, the circulation of photos, that might make making that argument easier. But when you're dealing with the sort of, uh, you know, the, the paintings and the political cartoons that are circulating in the late 19th century, it just seems like there was a lot of power in that mythology because it aligned with so many things that we wanted to believe were true about America in that period. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, we have a question here from April Mastin who asked, uh, were, were there many newsboy strikes? Newsboy strikes. Uh, I showed you that one picture picture from the 1840s. Uh, there was a strike in the Civil War, which which the because they're, they're distributing papers to the Union Army, and the uh, uh, the the Army said this was a mutiny, and so uh, they just dismissed all those kids and sent them back to to New York. 
Um, and but then in the 1870s, uh, 80s in particular, 1886, they're not only newsboy strikes, but they're school children strikes, all mm -hmm. caught up with this, uh, the nights of labor and this agitation uh, for the eight hour day. And the children imbibe that, they, they, they take on the language. And the, so they're striking. So we all know about the 1899 newsboy strike, uh, the subject of newsies, um, which is sort of portrayed as kind of a one off aberration. But there were uh, dozens and dozens of strikes. Uh, during this, uh, during the, the 1880s and 1890s, and and then even in the early 1900s um, as well. So, so their labor uh, activism is a big is a big finding in this in this book. Uh, dozens and dozens of strike. I didn't leave one out. That's why it's so long. Excellent. Uh, we have a question from an anonymous attendee who asked, "How many actual or how many newsboys that is actually pulled themselves out of the working class?" Well, yes, how true is the myth? I, I thought I would be able to find that out. I would just, I would get their names. I would be able to do the research. Um, and it's, it's hard, it's hard to. What I have found is that most of these children uh, went into other working class occupations. They became teamsters, bartenders, porters. And so uh, they went from this, this unwage labor to working class wage labor. Um, uh, the reformers would say, you know, know that they that they die, they go in, they go to jail. And in the progressive era, the, the reformers in the early 1900s would would say, um, you know, uh, you know, 75, 80 percent of all the inmates in Sing Sing uh, are were, were former newsboys, according to the warden. And then the circulation managers and the publishers say, no, every president uh, but Lincoln, well, since Lincoln was a newsboy. And so that so they so it was not it was it's hard to actually verify the, the, the reality of, of, of raising yourself up by your bootstrap, it becomes part of a narrative where people make all kinds of outrageous claims. Uh, very few became wealthy. Some went into other aspects of the news trade, but the wealthy ones and, and the successful and the famous ones tended to write their memoirs, tended to attribute their success to their, to their young uh, experiences. And so that they perpetuated this story itself. However, infrequent or rare that it was. Hmm. Donna Rilling asks, um, do you know more about the household economies that you mentioned? The household economies, yes, they really were strategic about it. Uh, some, some parents thought it was dangerous. They didn't want their kids. So, but when the father was laid off, they'd send the kid out. When the mother needed a little extra something, she'd send the younger kid out. Uh, they would also say, you know, you think that my kids are, are neglected uh, and that are, are just exposed to the dangers of the street, but they only sell on the street. They only go into the saloon where we know the proprietor. And so they had a way of supervising their children's labor, monitoring, regulating their children's labor uh, in, in to, to, to protect them and also to uh, reflect the incomes of their, of their adult uh, uh, breadwinners as well. So that's that's one aspect. I think there's, a, there's other things I could say about the family strategy and the family economy. Um, but that that's what comes to mind now. So um, a question that I had, and I certainly appreciated the, uh, the Philadelphia story that you told. You're really playing to the audience here. Very much appreciate that. Um, were there notable differences that you encountered in, in, in sort of your survey of, of newsboys, both in terms of them as cultural icons, but also in terms of their social realities, um, sort of between different cities, between different regions in America? Like, how did that experience differ throughout these different periods? Yeah, yeah. 
a, a lot of similarity, of course, but a lot of things happen at different periods and different times because a, a newspaper industry will be very flourishing in New York. And then in the Midwest, it's on it's it's more bare bones. It's a smaller operation. Uh, and so they, they make a different use of these children. It also reflects the demographics of the city. If a city like on the eastern seaboard is 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 uh, inundated with with immigrants, uh, then you'll you'll see the 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 workforce of the city reflects the immigrant patterns, and you you'll see the newcomers tend to dominate, and and the uh, the Irish and then the Irish are giving way to the Italians, the Italians are giving way to the Jews, and and uh, and and so it ref, it reflects that, and then as they're there longer, they're able to go into more uh, secure operations. Uh, some towns like like in like industrial towns like uh, uh, Pittsburgh, there's you know you go into the to the mining. Uh, if if they're sort of one occupation towns, uh, there were fewer kids, the fewer kids uh, selling on the streets because they could they could get jobs in these in these. Uh, uh, glass factories and in these mines, uh, coal mines, quite quite early, quite young. Uh, so the, the the nature of the economy changed. Race relations changed as well uh, in the in the South as well. More African Americans, Cincinnati, St. Louis, lots of African Americans, and we see we see instances of cooperation and conflict as well. Sometimes there's race riots among them. Sometimes they're uniting in a strike to speak of one of the many strikes I didn't talk about. So we see uh, variations in the cities and also in the, in the West as well. Uh, boom towns in, in Colorado and Den and, uh, and uh, Nevada and, and these, these towns and they and the, the popular, they're, they're Mexican, they're native American, they're, they're whites, they're, they're, uh, they're immigrants. Uh, and, and they are, uh, uh, and and they're, and, they're, and kids there are starting their own newspapers, right? Young people are expected to to uh, uh, do things in a precocious manner. And so, uh, uh, one an, an eight year old in one city is not like an eight year old in another city. So there's lots of uh, lots of different kinds of variations from city to city. All right. So now we're, now we're going to try something. Our right. lightning round. Two questions. Two All minutes. Right. All right. And they're sort of related, actually, very conveniently for me. And they sort of take us to the present moment. Uh, first one is why aren't there any newsboys today? Well, there there are. I mean, they're adults. Uh, um, why aren't there any newsboys today? I did I did went to go to a, dupe, a depot in uh, Long Island, sold paper, uh, delivered papers uh, to relieve my nephew for a while, and they are still immigrants. They are still poor people. There are still lots of languages talking spoken. Mm -hmm. They're still not organized. They're still fined and they're still dissatisfied and they still rely on tips at the end of the year. So there's, but they are adults. They are in cars. So we see, and I talk about this in the conclusion, um, in the 1930s, uh, when the economy tanks, it becomes work for adults, right? This is valuable income. And so they get a lot of competition from adults. Uh, and then in the, in the 40s, there's still kids around, but there's more stands, there's more rationalization of the industry. We have the suburbanization in the 50s and 60s, uh, fewer and fewer street sellers, but more uh, uh, paper boys, the suburban paper boy becomes iconic. Um, and so, and then we have uh, 70s, 80s, we get a rash of kidnappings, it becomes more dangerous, people don't want them, we have fast foods, children can go into other occupations, they don't have to get up at the crack of dawn uh, with their parents. Uh, and so there's other kinds of options. And then of course, the internet is just killing newspapers. And so there are fewer newspapers. And, yeah. and, and uh, so this combination of, of, of factors and forces led to the, led to the decline of the juvenile child newsboy. It sounds like you sort of addressed the second question, which is from Jack um, 
Holmgren, uh, who writes, who are the newsies in the age of Trump, immigrants, women, and other exploited groups. But I would also sort of add to that then the question of, okay, so there's, there's the actual uh, labor behind the distribution of print, um, but then like who inhabits that, um, that mythic space today? Do, do we have workers that we sort of hold up in a similar way that you saw in your research into the 19th century? Well, you got to tell me. I don't know who are who are the uh, the up and comers, the, the 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 people whose work is valorized. Um, it could it could be anybody. It could be fast food workers. It could be um, uh, students who work and go to school. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I, immigrants should be immigrants. Often, sort of internalize the American dream more than more than anybody, and they are they are self exploiting in a way that, that uh, and I say in the book, there's really a thin line between opportunity and exploitation, right? You see it as a, an opportunity to, to, to be able to be exploited is something people crave in some, in, in some moments, in some places, because, because their want, their deprivation is so great. Mm. Uh, and so we see a lot of people uh, uh, grateful to be exploited uh, temporarily. There's, there's a diminishing returns and, and, and a growing discontent. Uh, but there are a lot of people at the bottom of, of society. And I would say, let's look at the uh, uh, gig workers. The newsboys were the, were the prototypical original gig workers. They weren't employed. They didn't have uh, vacation. They didn't have any of these things. So, so these gig workers today, whether you're driving Ubers or not, they can learn a lot about what it's like to be a non-employee, to be mm -hmm. self-employed. When, when people are telling you when to show up, what to wear, how to do your job. But no, you're not an employee. You don't get any, any unemployment benefits. You don't get any vacation. You don't get any health care. But you're, you're, you're self-employed. You're, you're a gig worker. So th those are the uh, people who uh, uh, fill that spot in the economy today. And That's such world. an excellent connection. Thank you for making that. And um, thank you for this wonderful presentation. Um, I'm going to run out and pick up this book and I encourage the rest of you to uh, pick it up as well. Uh, if only for this wonderful survey, this national survey of newsboys throughout the 19th century. Thank you, Vince. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody for coming. All right. And for the rest of you uh, who might be interested in sort of continuing this uh, this this educational journey with us uh, next week, same time, same place, Glenda Goodman is going to be talking about her book, Cultivated by Hand, Amateur Musicians in the Early American Republic. Hope that you can join.